I want to write a new story. About a girl. A girl who's searching. The girl doesn't know what she's searching for. She just knows there's an emptiness in her life. And when she finds the thing she's searching for, everything will make sense. I want a story with a happy ending. Stupid stories nobody wants to hear. Welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the powerful effects of narrative on human consciousness and the dangerous ways in which it is often wielded by our governments, institutions, and corporations via the mass media. I'm your work in progress host, Harv, and in this episode, we're exploring the notion that COVID-19 was just a story. Let's challenge the narrative together, shall we? Well, it's been a long time since, narratively speaking, season one. Uh, I wasn't even sure if there'd be a season two. Uh, I kind of ended it saying there might not be. For a while there, it did seem like I'd said everything I had to say, but I guess it was inevitable that the old microphone would call me back for another round at some point. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Let me just recall that memory. I should put music in there, but anyway. Come on, Harv. Come back. Sit down. Chill. Maybe say a few words and see how it feels. You're in a new place now. The pandemic is over. It's time to embrace the plan for the future. Oh, I don't care anymore, Mike. Everyone's just rolled over. They'll do it again. The government went into full tyranny and no one stood up. Well, how about stories? You still love telling stories, don't you? Bro, I am fucking tapped out. I can't write anymore. This thing's broken me. I'm paralyzed. You spent thousands of dollars setting up this podcast room and buying you equipment. Don't you want to get your money's worth? You're one of the cheapest people I know. Surely that's going to get you. I don't know. Maybe. It'll get you chicks. All right, fire up my brand new $800 Roadcaster Pro. Let's do this shit. Hello, ladies, and welcome to Narratively Speaking. So here it is. COVID-19 is real. I had it and it was bad. It was a clear third worst virus I've ever had close on the heels of rheumatic fever and dengue, but way worse than that one I picked up when I was a gunner in Nam. And I'll be honest, I don't really want to talk about it anymore. I'm so fucking over it. But as I sit down and try to record the first episode of season two of Narratively Speaking out of Thousands of episodes I did. No, okay, it's not thousands. Dozens of episode ideas that I had. No matter what I do, thoughts of the pandemic keep creeping back in so that I can't focus on the other stuff that I want to talk about. So, if nothing else, I'm going to talk about it just one last time 
if only to purge it from my mind so we can talk about more interesting, hopeful things. So if you're sick of the pandemic like I am, and why wouldn't you be, then feel free to skip this episode. I will not judge you. We will be getting to much more interesting shit eventually. So if you've been listening to Narratively Speaking before, or if you're new to it, let me just be clear. I was never on board with the lockdowns. I uh, was working in data science at the time, data analytics. It was, for me, a data issue. I did my best to source the data that all the news and information that we were getting were based on. And when I did that, I found information that completely contradicted what the mainstream media was telling us. Uh, To me, it was obvious. There was no doubt. There was no question. We were being told initially that this virus was going to kill like 10 to 20% of the population. And it was just clear from the data that just wasn't true. And we're talking about data in March of 2020. We're not talking about very early on when we had the footage of people in China dropping dead. Do you remember seeing those and passing them around in your social media? Because those videos disappeared pretty quickly, didn't they? They were never really looked at again or substantiated. They were just kind of absorbed into the memory hole somehow. But yeah, there was no one dropping dead of COVID-19. And there certainly wasn't going to be a 20% population reduction as a result. But I'm willing to bet that those initial narratives still color your fear response to the virus even now. And yes, a lot of us have become less afraid, and that's a good thing. You'll probably respond more effectively to a dangerous situation if you don't have the disabling emotion of fear overriding all your senses. However, that is how we function as human beings, and it's not something that we can really control. And that's how they get you, ladies and gentlemen. But I don't want to get too bogged down in conspiratorial ideas. We'll have to touch on them because as far as I'm concerned, there's a large possibility that there was a conspiracy at play here, a genuine one that was operating in the background. Uh, One of those conspiracies where you can't point to the individuals involved, but you can see the machinery that generated it, the systemic mechanisms that made it happen without anyone in particular, conspiring and planning it. However, there were plans and conspiracies at play. The conspiracy is simply two or more people getting together to secretly get something implemented. And if you think that that can't happen, I don't know what world you're living in. It's a different one from mine. But I promise we'll stick to the ones that we can demonstrate were real and not fantasy or conjecture about what may have happened in the background. So let's talk a little bit about misinformation. Let's just get it out on the table and discuss some of the things that we were told that I think in retrospect were pretty clearly questionable and perhaps even point to some deliberate misdirection. And that's not to say that this kind of misdirection can't be used for good reasons. Sometimes a government will give their people a simplified or mildly distorted view of an issue in order to get them to comply with things. Obviously, in the tail end of the pandemic, the government was very keen on convincing people to take vaccines. I understand why that happens. It's not necessarily evil. However, it also has the effect of shaking trust in the source of the information, which is your own government, which you pay for with your tax dollars. It's a little bit of a betrayal, and it's very hard to take for someone like me. 
So let's start with the PCR tests. If you follow the alternative media, it became pretty clear early on that PCR testing, according to its inventor, was not intended to be a diagnostic tool. And as evidence, they had no other than the inventor of PCR testing, Kerry Mullis, saying it out loud. If, if they could find this virus in you at all, and with PCR, if you do it well, you can find almost anything in anybody it starts making you believe in the sort of Buddhist notion that everything is contained in everything else, right? I mean, because if you can amplify one single molecule up to, a, to something that you can really measure, which PCR can do, then there's just very few molecules that you don't have at least one single one of them in your body, okay? So that could be thought of as a misuse of it just to, to claim that it's meaningful. So, of course, that got a lot of us interested, those of us with more skeptical minds. And it turns out, on further reading that the PCR test is done in cycles. So you do it multiple times until you've amplified the genetic material to an extent that you can measure it. If you do enough cycles of the PCR test, you're going to find what you're looking for. The question is, is what you found meaningful? Is it an active virus or molecule doing something right now? Or is it something that just happens to be in your body that's been dead for a dozen years? And there was talk of uh, old flu virus potentially triggering the PCR and giving false positives. People asked if you had SARS-CoV-1, would that be genetically similar enough to trigger a false positive there, even if you'd had it 10 years ago? The answer seemed like it could be yes. A lot of it was conjecture. A lot of it I didn't have the scientific background to understand or have an opinion on. But there was the discussion. And of course, it made me wonder. What is the cycle threshold being used in Australian hospitals to determine if someone's got COVID? And strangely enough, that was very difficult to determine. I never could. Maybe it's down to the individual tester how many cycles they do. I really don't know because that information was not put out into the public. In fact, the idea of PCR cycle thresholds was never mentioned in our mainstream media. And you can probably work out why. It would have put doubt into the case numbers. And of course, that's not what the government wanted to do. So they're not going to start reporting. And I say this like the government is the media, but I don't think there was probably anything that you could point to where the media, especially in Australia, said anything that was contrary to the message the government wanted to portray. So eventually we were able to find sources that said uh, a cycle threshold of anything over, say, 36 would be pretty much meaningless for a PCR test. And for the countries that did put out what PCR cycle threshold they were using for testing, we found out that a lot of them were somewhere around 40. Some may have been even higher than that. There was a big question, and it varied from country to country, about whether or not the PCR tests were producing false positives. It was a genuine concern. It was verifiable. And there were a lot of shenanigans to make sure that that doubt never made it into the public consciousness. And as the pandemic rolled on, it was just one thing after another. Uh, we were told to flatten the curve for two weeks, which turned into two years. The media was reporting on this metric called cases, but surely it was the death rate of the virus that was really interesting. And sure, they did report on deaths, but then there was a question of whether they were reporting on deaths with COVID or deaths from COVID. And all of these definitions kept changing. The um, definition of case before this pandemic referred to someone who'd gotten sick 
and been admitted to hospital. But all of a sudden, a case now was just a positive PCR test, which, as I just pointed out, a lot of us were already doubting. And the definition of case changed multiple times. You can go and look on the CDC and World Health Organization websites. Not only that, the very definition of vaccine was changed on the CDC website. And you can see that because there's a, there's a website called the Wayback Machine that takes snapshots of previous states of websites. And you can use that to see where the CDC changed their definition. I'll put links in the description of this episode if you're interested to look at that. And then we had the vaccine stuff. And look, I know that's controversial. I don't want to talk about it all that much. I know it just triggers emotion in people and no one wants to look at it objectively. However, we did have suppression of information that favoured pushing the vaccines. I think it's fairly clear in retrospect that there are powers at play who wanted to get a vaccine into us. Do you happen to remember back when the vaccines were starting to be developed? We were told that Moderna was going to be providing the vaccines at cost and making no profit. Well, these are publicly listed companies. You could go look at their books and find out whether that little statement turned out to be true. It was a bumper year for vaccine makers. And again, I'm sure I'll be called a conspiracy theorist for bringing that up. But put it this way, I'm not saying that the vaccine companies caused the pandemic. I'm not saying that they endorsed the pandemic or even that they made it worse, although you could make an argument for that. I'm just saying if you were a vaccine company where you have a corporation with a board that's responsible for turning profits for the shareholders, would you think to make a plan for a possible future pandemic? And in that plan, what are the types of things you would include? I don't know, maybe it's just me, but when the pharmaceutical companies go, oh, a pandemic, oh, I didn't expect this, oh, who would have thought? I just don't quite buy it. And I think at this point, it's important to acknowledge that misinformation has a compounding effect. For example, if we just talked about the death rate being misreported due to the from COVID with COVID issue, that's one thing by itself. But when you compound that with the doubts about PCR testing and then subsequently what even constitutes a case, those things multiply the doubt together to a point where people start believing in things that are pure conjecture. There were people out there who thought there was no virus. There are people out there now still saying that there's no such thing as a virus. And not to discredit those people, they have their reasons. It's called terrain theory. It's pretty interesting philosophical conversation. But given most of us have experience of passing on viruses and receiving them, it can't be considered anything more than theoretical. And even that theory comes wrapped in a narrative about doubting government and the powers that be. But isn't that the kicker? Isn't that really the point of the whole thing? Whichever information you chose to adopt and believe was wrapped in a story. And the reason that you chose to adopt and believe it was most likely not linked to source data or first principle logic. It was probably because you liked the story that the people giving you that information were selling. It's like the fries with your burger. Would you like story with that? And really, at the end of the day, all the calories are in the fries. 
So when I finally caught COVID, it was bad. The stories that I'd absorbed and the ones that I had chosen to believe in had led me not to get vaccinated. And not to mention I had one of the major comorbidities that was supposed to make the virus potentially deadly in that I'm, well, probably considered morbidly obese. I try to stay positive and not get too morbid, but boy, it's hard to stand up when I've sat down for a while. But yeah, it was bad. This was no ordinary flu virus. It was something more, and I acknowledge that. There was a time when I was in the camp that said, this is just a bad flu. To some extent it is, but it made me sicker than I'd normally get from the flu. But even having experienced that and currently going through the fear of watching other people I love who also have risk factors catching the virus, I still feel that our response to the pandemic overall was basically fucking hysterical. A lot of people could have got this virus like a regular flu and moved on with their lives, but no, we had to lock down several times and try to keep the cases to zero. It was just insane. There were so many people, the majority of people, who were not at risk of dying of the virus and were likely to make a full recovery. And if you can imagine rolling back time and re-experiencing the pandemic, but minus the media messaging that accompanied it at every step, would we have even noticed there was a pandemic? Yes, a lot of people would have got sick. We would have referred to it definitely as a bad flu season, one of the worst perhaps. But would we have given this pandemic Spanish flu-like significance? The data's in now, folks. You can go and you can take the number of COVID deaths and compare it to the Spanish flu. And I can tell you, if you put it on a line chart, the COVID deaths are barely a blip in comparison to Spanish flu. You might attribute that to lockdown, and that's fine with me, providing you can cite data to prove it. And I would point you to Sweden, who did not lock down, as data that you could use as a starting point. All I'm asking is that you acknowledge that without the name COVID-19 and the computer-generated ball with red spikes, that you probably wouldn't have reacted from your first-hand experience the way you did. I know I certainly wouldn't have. I would have done a lot of things different. If anything, I went too far to the conspiratorial side. And, you know, there's a part of me that regrets that. Certainly when I was lying in bed with COVID, nearly dying, I regretted that I hadn't had a vaccine. Maybe it would have been beneficial after all. There was a stubbornness in me, I think, that led that charge. And here's the bit I guess I'm least proud of. I spent some time blaming you. I think the reason I wasn't able to get on the mic and talk about this stuff was because deep down, I'm angry. I'm really mad. I watched all this stuff happen and I screamed about the data from the rooftops and I tried to get people to see that there was this manipulation going on, that we were being led by the nose, by these stories that were being created that weren't supported by data. And no one listened to me. I'm an expert in data. I've done it as a career of 15, 20 years. I don't even want to think about how long it's been. Fuck me dead. That's a long time. But I thought I had value in this conversation and still no one listened 
to my perspective. It was all about, well, are you a qualified medical professional? And I'd say, no, I know data. That's all I'm claiming to know. I'm not talking about the science. I'm not talking about the medicine. I'm talking about the data. I'm able to read a scientific paper and look at the tables and draw conclusions. It's all I do. So when this came around and there were a whole bunch of people and sources, one of which was myself, but supported by dozens of other voices in the alternative media, and we just rolled over and took it right up the tailpipe. I don't know, guys. I was disappointed, I guess. You know, I'm not your father. You don't care whether I'm proud of you. But I don't think it was anyone's finest hour or two years for that matter. But now I look at it and I realize it wasn't my finest hour either. Maybe I could have done more. I didn't go on protest. I stayed home. I stayed safe. I took the easy route. Hell, I took the government money and I made a cartoon. I just feel like now we've done irreparable damage and there's no turning the clock back. But it wasn't right to blame you for that. I was watching an interview that Ivor Cummins did with Matthias Desmart, and I probably butchered his name and I apologize, but he's authored a book on mass formation psychosis. And if you haven't heard of that, that's a state that an entire population can go into collectively, which will force them not just to believe in misinformation and be susceptible to lies, but to actively participate in creating and maintaining the mistruths. Historically, it's a state populations go into before they start to accept totalitarian rule. And I think that's what happened here. But as I listened to the interview, it struck me that Matthias's main point was the most tragic of all. I started to be interested in mass psychology, and I started to, 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 to be fascinated by the question how it was possible that intelligent people, highly intelligent people, could believe in narratives that are simply blatantly wrong and refuse to see all the arguments that clearly show that the narratives they believe in are wrong. This strange kind of group formation, this strange phenomenon of mass formation, emerges in a society when the population is in a very specific condition. A substantial part of the population, and that's the most, the most crucial precondition, should feel lonely, should feel disconnected from its natural and its social environment. And that, for instance, was definitely, definitely the case just before the corona crisis started. Worldwide, 30% of the people reported to have no meaningful relationship at all. For instance, in the UK, Theresa May appointed a minister of loneliness because she acknowledged how many people felt lonely. And in the States, just before the corona crisis, the US Surgeon General mentioned uh, that they observe the so-called loneliness epidemic. We have all sorts of things that are making us lonely in modern society. Do I need to point to social media, lack of being in person, and not, not to mention the fucking lockdowns. How much worse and more isolated do we all feel after having been locked down? I remember the first time I went out after lockdown and I didn't know how to talk to people anymore. I felt weird looking people in the eye, you know. I lost all those social skills and, you know, it happened relatively quickly. 
But the idea that people out there are lonely, and that's why we're susceptible to this takeover of our society. Now we're looking to governments and so-called experts to tell us what to do. Most of all, it's just sad. To some extent now, we're living in Star Wars and Klaus Schwab is our emperor. Tony Fauci is Darth Vader. And it's lucky those two are so cartoonish that they fit the narrative role of uh, villain and henchman fairly perfectly. And yeah, we can laugh at it, but we're in it now. It's not a joke. We can laugh at it, but there's going to be a point where it stops being funny and we realize what we've done. And it's not Klaus Schwab. It's not Bill Gates. It's not Tony Fauci. It's not all these conspiratorial figureheads because even without those guys, there are powers behind this that are way bigger than the faces that we get to see. We're in the Great Reset. This was a website, document, set of documents. Hell, it's a manifesto. And it was contributed to by probably thousands of people, intelligent people, big thinkers, people who probably, in their minds at least, thought they were doing a service to humanity. So for the purposes of our narrative, at Narratively Speaking, this is where I'm at. This is the start of the Great Reset. And now we've got a historical opportunity to watch the narratives unfold in real time. This is something that's never really happened before. We've never been captured like this by a totalitarian regime or idea or force. And yeah, it sounds silly when you say it, because when you look at the historical ones like Nazi Germany, they're much more obvious and much more visible. We've got something that's baby steps towards us having less, consuming less, and having things like social credit keep us in check. These things will be rolled out so slowly, we will barely even notice them. But I'm dedicated to making sure that we do notice them. And if you're interested in doing that, you should stick with me because that's what narratively speaking is about going forward. You'll notice the intro words have changed. Uh, and you may have even noticed that my attitude has changed as well. But I'm open to the idea that maybe some change is necessary. And maybe we're not as out of control of it now as I fear we are. And if that's the case, and maybe we get a little bit of a say in how this unfolds. I'm sure every time you turn on the heater or drive a car, you feel a little niggling of guilt in the back of your mind when you do these things. That's how the narrative works. I'm not here to say that the overall powers that be who are pushing this agenda aren't correct. It may be 100% necessary. but I would hope that human innovation and technological advancement would keep pace with the growing population. There's plenty of evidence to say that it can, but the elites, they've given up on that and they're all about reducing the population 
and reducing consumption now. And it's a pretty scary idea when people with that much power get into that mindset. The Georgia Guidestones blew up last night, I think it was. But on the Georgia Guidestones was a message that said we needed to keep human population under 500 million. Now, we're approaching, is it 9 billion now? Under 500 million is a massive reduction. I'm not saying that Klaus Schwab built the Georgia Guidestones, but they've certainly been reading the same fucking books. Anyway, as I say, we still have hope because even though we're in it now and it's probably irreversible, we're still here and we still have a say. And I think that if we exercise our voices and don't go into learned helplessness, then there's a chance that we could affect the outcome and keep human society good and tolerable. And it may be even a little bit fun sometimes. <laughs> and I, for one, have decided in keeping with practicing what I fucking preach, I'll be here to add my voice to the narrative, even if it's to no other benefit than to make us all feel a little less lonely. What? Uh, yeah, that intro that you had, uh, the, the clip. You want to tell a story uh, about a girl? It's just a clip from Westworld. Yeah, I mean, you know, like transitioning or something. Oh, I'm not transitioning. Fucking hell, you're a dickhead. Hey, I've got to ask the questions, that's all. It's all right if you are, because it'd probably be good for ratings. Shut up, Mike. <laughs>